the Psalms in Worship, a series of convention papers bearing upon the place of the Psalms in the worship of the Church, edited by John McNaher, Doctor of Divinity, Professor of New Testament Literature and Criticism in the Allegheny Theological Seminary, 1907. The Scriptural Law of Worship by the Rev. William H. Vincent, Doctor of Divinity, Allegheny, Pennsylvania, as read by Samantha Alosais. The worship of a supreme being seems to be a universal instinct, and because of the sovereignty, majesty, and holiness of the object of worship, must be surrounded by such safeguards, restrictions, and sanctities as will preserve the divine honor and secure the acceptance of the worshiper and his worship. It is of the most Im- utmost importance that every worshiper of God shall have a definite and clear understanding of what are the means and manner of worship that it may be acceptable unto God with whom we have to do. Without this knowledge, the great mass of the world's population has for ages, like the Athenians, worshipped unknown gods. Rather than incur the wrath of heaven by a form of worship that is dishonoring and pleasing to God, we should, instead of allowing ourselves ignorantly to worship, seek some divine message declaring what the mind of the Lord is and follow it. Our worship rendered to God is of the utmost importance. It is rendered to the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who created us, who preserves us, who saves us, and who is at last to judge us. Because he is the sovereign Lord of all, because he is infinitely high and holy, and has a watchful care over his worship that it be kept pure and holy, we are to be very watchful and conscientious that our worship be rendered according to the divine appointment. Many branches of the Protestant Church have been all at sea on this important matter, and we need to have careful thought and carefully digested and formulated regulations on the matter of worship, drawn from the Word of God, lest like the Roman Catholic Church in all its history we leave an open door for the introduction of all manner of idol worship and the inventions of men, until the purity and simplicity of the worship of God as set forth in the Scriptures are superseded and supplanted by the mummeries and man-made devices which corrupt and degrade our attempted approaches to God. This subject touches some of the highest, holiest, and deepest doctrines of our religion. It is founded on the sovereignty, majesty, and holiness of God. Is God the sovereign Lord of all? Is His revealed will to be accepted as the infallible guide of human conduct? Has He a right to rule in His own house? Has he a right to prescribe the way by which he may be approached and worshipped? If these questions are to be answered in the affirmative, then his rights in these matters are exclusive. No man or potentate, however exalted, nor any number of men as a church council, can arrogate to themselves the right to dictate or prescribe the manner by which God is to be worshipped. God himself must decide in what way he will be approached. He alone can lay down the ordinances and methods by which he may be acceptably worshipped. God's sovereign right covers the whole ground and does not leave any margin on which the intrusion of human inventions can get a footing. The Roman Catholic Church opens a wide door for all manner of ceremonies and inventions when it gives standing in its worship to anything not contrary to the word of God. For all its legion of inventions, it claims the authority of some council of the church, which, though perhaps unheard of otherwise in history, answers it as a convenient scapegoat on which to lay the sin. The Lutheran and Anglican churches claim a place for rites and services which may be approved by the church 
so long as they are not forbidden by the scriptures. The Reformed churches, especially those of the Puritan family of Holland and England, and the Presbyterian churches of Scotland and Ireland with their descendants, take a much higher ground and claim that the line is to be drawn, excluding everything which does not have plain divine appointment. In other words, that which is not commanded is forbidden. The faith of these churches is set forth in the catechisms larger and shorter and the confession of faith of the Westminster Assembly. Question 51 of the Shorter Catechism on what is forbidden in the Second Commandment states, quote, The Second Commandment forbiddeth the worshipping of God by images or any other way not appointed in His Word. End of quote. The Larger Catechism at Question 109 says in part, quote, The sins forbidden in the Second Commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. All superstitious devices corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it. End of quote. The Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 1, says, quote, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any way and any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. End of quote. That these statements of doctrine are in accord with the uniform teaching of the Scriptures is evident from the following. First, in the institution of worship, both in the Old and in the New Testament dispensations, what God, appoint, what God appoints alone can stand. All else is excluded. This would be expected from the fact that the great God we worship is the sovereign Lord of all. The laws he lays down for his subjects are not to be bandied about according to the caprice or sinfulness of man. God is Lord of his own house. It cannot have two lords or masters. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. The sovereignty, majesty, and holiness of God require that in all matters pertaining to our approach to Him in holy worship, it is His, command, it is his to command and ours to obey. Quote, ours not to make reply, ours not to question why. End of quote. Accordingly, we find in all the scriptures careful provision made that the worship of God may be according to his own appointment and surrounded with such safeguards and sanctities as shall preserve it unsullied and inviolate from the devices of man. Whence came the laws concerning sacrifices, concerning the Sabbath, concerning circumcision, concerning the feasts of the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, and concerning the great day of atonement, and many more? Were they not by divine appointment only? In the structure of the tabernacle, and its worship, all matters were minutely laid down and could not be altered. When God gave these commandments to Moses, at his august presence, Mount Sinai was filled with thunders and lightnings and clouds and fire and smoke, and that which he commanded left no room for additions or embellishments by Moses or any artificer, however skilled. That which was appointed to stand, that which was appointed was to stand, and all else was forbidden. When all the minute directions concerning the tabernacle and its appointments in the book of Exodus were laid down, it was accompanied by the divine decree. In chapter 25, verse 40, 
and look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. The tabernacle with all its materials and utensils may pass away, together with the temple whose services were likewise ordered of the Lord, but the principle that God reserves to himself the right to appoint the ordinances in manner of his own worship stands forever. Every ordinance of God's house must, must show its divine appointment. See that thou make it according to the pattern which was showed thee. Not only was the order of the tabernacle and the temple service thus provided for, but in later years when the temple service was restored by King Hezekiah, its sacrifices, the Passover and other ordinances, together with the praise service, were re-established according to the commandment of the Lord. Second Chronicles 29.30 says, Moreover Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. That all this was done by the king under divine authority is plainly stated in verse 25. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. In the order established by our Lord and the inspired apostles in the New Testament church, the ordinances of the reading and the preaching of the word, prayer, the singing of inspired songs, the observance of the Sabbath, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are all provided by the great king and head of the church. Our Lord severely condemns the Pharisees, who by their traditions and inventions laid heavy burdens upon men's shoulders. When extortion and unholy traffic had thrust themselves into the temple, our Lord, in his zeal for his holy house, drove therefrom with a whip the money changers and extortionate traders. He guards the purity of his house and worship that unholy devices may not dwell therein. Again, when he speaks of the Pharisees making void the ordinances of God by their traditions, he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. His last commission refers not only to the extension of his church, but to the purity of the, of the doctrine and worship of his church. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. They were to teach, not what things are not forbidden, but all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The people of Israel lived in the midst of the heathen and idolatrous nations, unless they should lose their exalted heritage of the truth of God and the purity of their religious life and worship. They were enjoined from familiar intercourse and entangling alliances with the heathen around about. The church of God today is in the same peril. Just as it begins to depart from the divine order, it opens the door to all manner of abuses and corruption in God's worship. God would guard his sacred oracle still unto the end of time by prescribing for his church the ordinances of worship. He would not have the ark of God suffer an unseemly touch, nor have strange fire come upon his altar. The sacredness of this trust of holy laws and ordinances is impressed upon us in Deuteronomy 4 verse 1 and 2. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you, 
This embraces more than are commonly known as moral precepts, for verses 13 to 19 particularly guard the people against profaning and corrupting God's worship, closing with the words, Lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them. Thus, by the most minute regulations, the great king and head of the church has guarded his holy ordinances of worship, that the conceit and devices of man may not add thereto or diminish therefrom. Second, it is a general principle in the interpretation of law that when something is commanded, whatever is opposed thereto is forbidden. When God commands, Thou shalt do no murder, He forbids any practices or habits which endanger our lives or the lives of others. When He commands, Thou shalt not steal, He lays upon us the obligation to be engaged in some useful, honorable employment that we may honestly obtain the things we need. When He commands, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve, He prohibits the giving of any kind of worship to any other. The worship of the sun, the moon, the stars, the Virgin Mary, the apostles, or any of the saints is all cast out by one sweep of the divine hand. The commandment, Worship God, covers the whole ground, and hence the giving of worship to any other is forbidden. When he commands the singing of inspired songs in his praise, that command covers the whole ground, and any other book of praise has no foundation in the word of God. But someone insists that, while the use of the Psalms of the Bible is proper, sacred songs written by uninspired men may be used, since they are nowhere forbidden. That is, however, the old plea of the Roman Catholic, that things not contrary to the word of God may be introduced. On the same principle, the worship of the Virgin Mary, confession to the priest, paying money to get friends out of purgatory, the sale of indulgences to commit sin, and the whole legion of such absurdities and heresies find an open door and may come in to corrupt and degrade the church of God. This old plea that things not forbidden may be introduced into the worship of the church is a Trojan horse in which all manner of corruptions and abominations can clandestinely creep into the very holy of holies of the worship of the church. It was said that the Reverend John Newton was a great lover of cats. Once he possessed a mother cat and a kitten. In the kindness of his heart and to prevent the too frequent interruption of his studies by waiting on the cats, he had two holes cut in the door of his house, one for the old cat and a smaller one for the kitten. It had not occurred to the good man that the hole that would admit the larger cat would admit also the kitten. Indeed, would not only two cats but any number of cats. When you have made an opening in the door of God's house large enough to admit songs of praise which God has not authorized, that same hole will admit the worship of the Virgin Mary, prayers to St. Peter, confession to the priest, holy water, kissing the Pope's toe, and the whole brood of pollutions and monstrosities from which the Church escaped in the tremendous revolution and reformation of the 16th century. The great principle that only what is commanded has a place in the worship of God was one of the cornerstones of the Reformation. Without it, the great battle of Protestantism against Romanism could never have been fought out and won. In inserting this doctrine, we are simply calling the Church back to one of the great attainments of the Reformation when purity of worship and the inspired songs of God's Word 
had the right of way in all the Reformed churches. Third, God has revealed by startling judgments his displeasure when the divine rule is violated. When Nadab and Abihu appeared before the Lord to offer incense in Leviticus 10, they took their censers and put strange fire therein to offer before the Lord. God's appointment was that the fire should be taken from off his own altar and it was therefore holy. But instead they used fire of their own kindling. The fire which they used would perhaps burn as brightly and consume the incense just as well and doubtless many would say it is just as good but it lacked this peculiar mark of sanctity it was not of God's appointment it was not divine fire as a mighty judgment fire from heaven like a blazing bolt of lightning smote them and they, devi- and they died before the Lord they had intruded a merely human device into holy things and thus supplanted and superseded the sacred divine order and they died for their sin. When King Uzziah had his heart lifted up with pride and conceit, he appeared in the temple with a censer to burn incense before the Lord. The attendant priests were horrified, and fourscore of them in their flowing robes rushed after him and cried unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. But the hot-headed king persisted, and God smote him upon his forehead with a loathsome leprosy, and they thrust him out from thence, yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. For anyone, even for a king, to intrude himself was an offense to God, and God put a mark upon him as manifest as the mark of Cain. When those priests with strange fire died before the Lord, the Lord said, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Someone may say, Oh well, the matter cannot be regarded so strictly now, or we would see such judgments every day. But because those who offend God do not reap the punishment at once, is no proof that God has ceased to hold men to an account for intruding upon his sacred appointments and offering strange fire. One judgment of this kind hangs out the red light of warning for all time, because all liars are not struck dead for the prevarications as were Ananias and Sapphira it is no indication that God has ceased to hate lying one swift terrible judgment like that is sufficient for all time one startling startling manifestation of God's displeasure like that upon Nadab and Abihu rings in our ears down through the ages the message beware of intruding human devices into the sacred things of God Beware of substituting any invention of man, however pleasing, for the simple sacred order of God's appointments. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Thus the simple divine order of things appointed becomes the inviolable law to be observed in the worship of God for all time. Would we not count it a great sacrilege and scandal if men would substitute something else for the bread and wine in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which God has appointed? Would we not count it a profanation of God's ordinance of baptism if men would set about to substitute some other liquid for the pure water which God has appointed? Is it not the same principle when men intrude any other compositions or praise books into divine worship to supplant God's book and substitute instead the invention of man? But some may say, Can we not versify and sing other portions of the word as the Gospels and thus sing the Gospel? To this it may be said, 
First, God's provision is to preach the gospel to the world, not to sing it. Second, the gospels are not lyrical and were never intended for the praise service of the house of God. Third, there is but one book which God has labeled the book of praise either in the Old or New Testament church and that book is the appointed and authorized book of Psalms. The crucial point which we emphasize in this discussion is what has the divine appointment? By that standard every book of praise must stand or fall. That which has not the divine appointment has no standing in God's house. The book of Psalms not only has the seal of inspiration but it, also, but it has also the clear and unmistakable appointment of God. Hence it is the book of praise for the church of God in every age and in every land as it has songs which relate not only to the past and present of the church but to the church in the millennial age and since the spirit of inspiration is withdrawn from the church the book of Psalms is designed to continue as the manual of praise in the church until the end of time. Thus ends the scriptural law of worship by the Reverend William H. Vincent, Doctor of Divinity. The Scriptural Law of Worship by the Reverend William S. McClure, Doctor of Divinity, Xenia, Ohio, as read by Samantha Elosais. Spiritual service rendered to God by a sentient being is worship. For such service from man, God has made ample provision in that he has endowed him with a reasonable soul and furnished him with matter and means for worship. That God, who alone is worthy of worship, should give to man, from whom a worthy worship is due, a law of worship, is an antecedent probability. That this law should be found in the scriptures, which purport to be the word of God, his will become concrete and audible, addressed to man whose worship God claims and calls for, is not a matter of conjecture, but of certitude. Quote, the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. End of quote. Law which emanates from the nature of God is moral natural law, inflexible and unchanging as the nature of God himself, who has said, I change not. This is the law which binds us to the worship of God because of what God is and because of what we are. It is stated thus by the Holy Ghost, He is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Moral positive law takes its rise in the will of God. Its binding force is subject to his will. It is by this law that the matter and means, the method and manner of acceptable worship are determined. This is the law of worship which lies within the scope of our inquiry, with respect to which there can be but one source of authority, that is, the revealed will of God and but one rule of action, that is, a divine warrant. With respect, therefore, to the scriptural law of worship, I submit the following proposition, that is, first, whatsoever is not commanded in the scriptures is forbidden. Second, the Bible Psalter alone is commanded to be used in the praise service in the worship of God. And third, therefore all matter of praise besides the Bible Psalter is by the scriptural law of God by the scriptural law of worship forbidden to be used in the praise service in the worship of God
First, the major premise, whatsoever is not commanded is forbidden. God's commands are either explicit, clearly stated, or they are implicit, implied as a logical necessary inference from authoritative example, such as that of Christ or his apostles. The Westminster divines exempt from the operation of this law, quote, some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, end of quote. Considering this deliverance, let us note, first, these circumstances are neither in nor are they a part of the worship of God, but only concern the worship of God. Second, they are such as, quote, are common to human actions and societies, end of quote. That is, the time and place of meeting, how often and how long, whether in a house or tent or barn or forest or street, whether morning, noon or night, etc. These are, quote, circumstances concerning the worship of God, such as are common to human actions and societies. End of quote. Third, quote, the circumstances concerning the worship of God are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. End of quote. Are to be ordered, quote, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. End of quote. Taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, Section 6. That God may be worshipped in any way not forbidden in the scriptures is the doctrine held by Romanists and Prelatists and is the scriptures and, and in the scriptures they include the Apocrypha. Accepting the Apocrypha, this is the doctrine likewise of the Lutherans, the Protestant, Protestant Episcopalians and, other, and certain of their Presbyterian imitators. In her 20th article, the Church of England claims the right, quote, to decree rites and ceremonies, end of quote, with this limitation only, that, quote, it is not lawful for the church to order anything that is contrary to God's written word, end of quote. That is, anything is legitimate in the worship of God, which is not expressly forbidden in the scriptures. What larger license can rationalism and ritualism in religion ask than this? Positive divine prescription was accepted as the only warrant in matters of faith and worship by John Knox, John Owen, John Calvin, the Free Kirk of Scotland, the Puritan Martyrs, and the Westminster Divines. Quote, Discretionary powers exercised by the Church in the assumption that whatsoever is not forbidden is permitted was the chief fountain from which flowed the gradually increasing tide of corruptions which swept the Latin Church into apostasy from the Gospel of God's Grace. End of quote by Dr. Gerardo. Quote, so sure as cause produces effect and history repeats itself in obedience to this law, any Protestant church which embodies that principle in its creed is destined sooner or later to experience a similar fate. End of quote. These are the words likewise of Dr. John Owen, that Prince of English Divines. Quote, the principle that the Church has power to institute anything belonging to the worship of God, either as to matter or manner, beyond the circumstances which necessarily attend such ordinances as Christ himself has, hath instituted, lies at the bottom of all horrible superstitions and idolatry, of all the confusion, persecution, blood, and war which have spread themselves over the Christian world. End of quote. 
These are the opinions of two great and devout students of the Word of God and of history. In our endeavor to find an answer to our query, what is the scriptural law of worship, we are not shut up to the opinions of men, mighty and majestic as they may be. The crucial test of all teachers and tenets is this, that is, quote, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to the word, according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. End of quote. Isaiah 8, verse 20. First, to the law and to the testimony. What saith Jehovah in his word with respect to his own worship? A. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live, and go in, and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. B. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32 What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. C. Exodus 25, 40 Concerning the construction of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and its meeting and its furniture, Jehovah charged Moses, saying, quote, "Look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount." End of quote. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, teaching them, said Jesus to his disciples, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. See also Revelation twenty-two verse sixteen to nineteen. Second, what is God's own interpretation of the scriptural law of worship as found in his enforcement of that law, examples of which are recorded in the scriptures? A. In Genesis 4, verse 3 to 5, Cain fell under the ban of that law in that with respect to the matter and manner of God's worship, he set his own will in the stead of God's will. Cain stands forth as the first among rationalists in religion and as a warning to his race. B. Leviticus 10, verse 1 to 3, the offering of incense to God with fire, which he commanded them not, was the sin for which Nadab and Abihu were struck dead. C. Numbers 16, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were overtaken by the swift indignation of Jehovah simply for using discretionary powers in matters of worship. They usurped functions which belonged only to a certain class the descendants of Levi through Aaron. Korah was a Levite, but not a son of Aaron. D. Numbers 20. Moses was excluded from the promised land because he went beyond the command with respect to the rock and water at Kadesh. E. Other Old Testament examples may be found in 1 Samuel 13, 1 Kings 12, verse 32 and 33, 1 Chronicles 13, 7 through 10, 1 Chronicles 15:11 through 15, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16 to 21, 2 Chronicles 28, 3 to 5, Acts 7, verse 37 to 53. The rejection of Christ and of His Word as the sole and supreme authority in matters of worship is designated as resisting the Holy Ghost, the sin on account of which the Jewish Church, state, and national polity were demolished. The scriptural law of worship as written in the scriptures and as enforced by examples recorded in the scriptures is this, that is, 
whatsoever is not commanded is forbidden. Second, the minor premise. The Bible Psalter alone is commanded to be used in the praise service in the worship of God. The proofs of this proposition we may be permitted simply to point out since it takes us into the territory assigned to others. A. A strong presumptive proof of this proposition is found in the fact that the Bible Psalter was prepared and placed in the canon of Scripture among whose books it has neither a peer nor a rival. Its position is altogether unique. B. The name by which the Holy Ghost designates the Bible Psalter goes a long ways in establishing our proper proposition. Quote, Sifr Tehillim also interpreted book of praises, book of psalms, book of hymns, designated not simply, simply to be read as other books of the Bible, but to be sung. C. That the foregoing is a fair inference is established by the fact that over and over again we have the command in scriptures, in scripture to sing psalms. A few examples. 1 Chronicles 16 verse 9 Psalm 95 2 Psalm 149, 1, Psalm 150, verse 2, Colossians 3, 16, Ephesians 5, 19, James 5, 13. D. The title given by the Holy Ghost to David, the author of the major part of the Psalms, that is, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as descriptive of his office. He was, quote, the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. End of quote. E. That God appointed the Bible Psalter to be used in the Old Testament church none perhaps will deny. That God has anywhere or at any time revoked that appointment none can affirm. Therefore, if the example of Christ and his apostles and of the post-apostolic church can be adduced as sanctioning the use of the Psalms in the worship of the New Testament church, then we are forced to the conclusion that it is the will of God that the Bible Psalter be used in the praise service of the New Testament Church. The Jews sing the Psalms unto this day. The hymn sung by our Lord and his apostles at the close of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the night it was instituted, was beyond the possibility of a doubt a portion of the Hallel. Psalms 113-118 through 118. See Matthew 26 verse 30 and Mark, 5, Mark 14 verse 26 In the Gospels and the Acts the book of Psalms is recognized as the praise book of the church Third, the conclusion Therefore in the praise service in the worship of God all matter of praise besides the Bible Psalter is forbidden by the scriptural law of worship According to this law a lyric to be eligible to the praise service in the worship of God must have these two requisites and qualifications, that is, divine authorization and divine inspiration. Paraphrases and poems from other books of the Bible are excluded by the scriptural law of worship from the praise service in God's worship for reasons such as these. First, other parts of scripture are equally inspired with the Psalter but they have no seal of divine appointment for purposes of praise. Second, the song's service in the worship of God is designed to praise God, his attributes, his modes of substance, and his prerogatives. 
To sing the gospel is, as such is not to praise God for the reason that the gospel is addressed to men and not to God. All merely human compositions are by the law of worship forbidden to be used in the praise service in the worship of God for the reasons that they are neither authorized nor inspired. Quote, The second commandment forbiddeth the worshipping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. End of quote. From the Shorter Catechism, question 51. God may not be worshipped in any way, quote, not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. End of quote. From the Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 1. The words of him, quote, who is the head over all things unto the church, end of quote, are these. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Who is he who can say that the testimony of the United Presbyterian Church is not in accord with the scriptural law of worship when it says, quote, We declare that it is the will of God that the songs contained in the book of Psalms be sung in his worship, both public and private, to the end of the world, and in singing God's praise, these songs should be employed to the exclusion of the devotional compositions of uninspired men. End of quote. Whatsoever is not commanded is forbidden. This, the scriptural law of worship, is the acropolis of the church's liberties, the palladium of her purity, and her God-given moorage. Let the Protestant church, in creed or conduct, in profession or practice, depart from this divine principle, and she has weighed her sheet anchor, only to find its fluke sundered and herself adrift on the high seas, a craft without compass or chart or pole star, in the midnight darkness of rationalism and ritualism, with her prow pointing to Rome as her probable landing place. Thus ends the scriptural law of worship by the Reverend William S. McClure. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue.